0: Lord Jesus, some of us here may be coming with only a, a mustard seed of faith. We give that to you. We offer it to you. And we ask that as we hear your word, you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, cause it to grow in our lives and bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. And I want to encourage you to take a look at our passage from the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy. That's on page 11. Print it in your bulletin uh, because I'll be preaching based on that passage this morning. Over a hundred years ago on a Tuesday morning, an artist went to a well-known museum to paint a famous uh, picture or to sketch a famous picture. But when he arrived at the painting, all he saw was a blank wall and there were just kind of four hooks where the painting was supposed to be. And uh, he assumed that museum photographers had taken the painting uh, to take pictures of it because that was not uncommon. But then a couple hours later, he started to get concerned and he talked to the guards and they checked with the photographers and they had no idea where this painting was. And that's when the alarm was sounded at the Louvre Museum in Paris in 1911. The Mona Lisa was stolen. Earlier that summer, some people were critical of the museum because they said the security is getting too lax. And the director of the museum brushed that criticism aside and he said, you might as well say that the, that the towers of Notre Dame Cathedral could be stolen. They did take some security measures. They did take some measures to bolster their security. They taught some of the security guards judo. Many of those security guards were, were elderly, by the way. The museum had become complacent. In fact, the very day that the Mona Lisa was stolen, the director of maintenance saw that it was gone, and he was giving a tour to visitors. The museum was shut down at this time. And as he walked past where the Mona, Mona Lisa was supposed to be, it was a blank, he said... Well, I guess they have taken it because they're concerned that somebody might steal it. They're concerned that you all might steal it. He made a joke about it. It took 28 months for the thief to be caught and the Mona Lisa to be returned to its rightful place. The most famous painting in the world, this great treasure, was stolen because it wasn't guarded properly. In our passage from 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes this. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is the good deposit that he's talking about here? Well, it's clear from the context that he's talking about the teaching of the apostle. Paul's talking to Timothy, writing to Timothy. About his own instruction and he's calling these instructions sound words and these sound words. Are the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul refers to himself in this passage as a preacher as an apostle and as a teacher of the gospel. The gospel is the great deposit the great treasure of the church that has to be guarded You can have a wonderful church building. You can have engaging programs and social events. But if the gospel is gone, if there's a blank where the gospel needs to be, then you don't really have a church. How does a church guard the gospel? This is what I want to talk to you about. Paul is writing to Timothy, of course, who's a young pastor. And so I think what he says in 1st and 2nd Timothy applies first and foremost to pastors and to church leaders but Paul expects this letter to be read by other members of this church that Paul's a pastor of or Timothy's a pastor of he expects others to hear what he has written so how might pastors and the whole church guard the gospel in the church what can we learn from this passage well, it starts with leadership. It starts with having the right leaders. It starts with having leaders who are qualified and who understand the importance of preserving the gospel, prioritizing the gospel, guarding the gospel. Throughout his letters to Timothy, Paul is talking about the characteristics and qualifications of church leaders. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, he talks about various qualities of the pastor, the, the elder. And then he goes on and he talks about the qualifications of a deacon. And many of these qualifications of church leaders have to do with their characteristics, with their character, rather. And, um, and so he is concerned, Paul is concerned at this stage in his life, He knows that he's got only a little time left and Timothy is going to take over leadership. So Paul's concerned about the second generation of the church. He's writing in jail. He's facing trial. He knows he senses he's going to be martyred for the faith, which which happens. Um, And uh, he wants to make sure that qualified leaders will take over. And in this passage, we see some qualities in young Timothy that ought to be characteristic of any, any church leader, especially any pastor. So look at verse 5. He recalls Timothy's sincere faith. Sincere faith ought to be a character quality of a church leader. I'm reminded, he says, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So we see here that uh, Timothy's grandmother and mother had a... Shaping influence on his life by their example and and maybe their instruction. They passed down the faith to him, but he had to own it himself. It had to become a personal faith, a sincere faith that dwelt in him. And it's wonderful. Where would the church be without godly mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers to live out their faith and to instruct children in the faith? But at some point, it needs to be their own faith. And that happened in the life of Timothy. Paul recognizes that Timothy's faith in Christ and his hope in the gospel was sincere. He owned it himself. So Timothy was not filling a role, just filling a role or a function. But his faith in Christ was at the core of who he was. It dwelt in him. He was a leader of sincere faith. And he was gifted to lead, it says in verse six, Paul says to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul, at some point, prayed for Timothy and laid his his hands upon Timothy. And as he prayed for Timothy, God imparted the gifts that Timothy would need to be a pastor Of the church. In fact, it wasn't just Paul who prayed for Timothy in that way. We read in 1st Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 14, that the council of elders laid hands upon Timothy. So do you have this picture in mind of young Timothy at some point gathered before leaders, the elders of the church, including the Apostle Paul? And as he is perhaps kneeling in prayer, they're laying their hands upon Timothy God is imparting gifts. They're recognizing the gifts that Timothy has been given by God. And they are setting him apart for ministry. We do this in our ordination services, don't we? And even now there are people in the ordination process in this church going through the discernment process. And the question is, are they called and are they gifted for these particular offices? Are they called to be set apart to do this work? Well, this was confirmed in Timothy's life. So here's a man who has sincere faith in Jesus, who's gifted and who's been recognized by the community and now set apart for this work. He's qualified. So I want to say to Church of the Resurrection, to leaders and lay people. We have the right and the responsibility to protect the message of the gospel and you have to have leaders who are willing to do that men and women of sincere faith who have the gifts and the qualifications otherwise so easily the gospel can be set aside and I'm saying this to people I know who have who have seen that happen in church in churches we have people in this church who were part of a church that the, the the pastor did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he was very clear about that. He wrote a book to that effect. And, and they left because they said, no, that's not the gospel as we have received it from the apostles. We can't be part of a church like that. There's a lady in this church who was part of a, a church where people were embarrassed to talk about Jesus. Can you imagine? Church leaders in smaller groups and Sunday schools would get embarrassed if they talked too much about Jesus. They wanted to talk about other things. Maybe you've heard about a church in Canada where the minister, this came out this year, I believe, where the minister is an atheist. And uh, the denomination decided that she could stay as a minister because they didn't want to go through the trouble and the, and the, and the resources, the money of a, of a heresy trial. But get this, many of her parishioners were happy to have an atheist minister. Many were supportive of her. One congregate said this, I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. It's so yuck. <laughs> so she said, the church fulfills my need to fill up beat and the services are joyful. And they're about community and justice. So those services led by an atheist might be joyful and about community and justice. But one thing they can't be about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Which presupposes, of course, that there is a God. And uh, I think we can all say we're for joy and justice and community, but we also must be about the gospel. So how does a church depart from the gospel? It, It oftentimes starts with the wrong leaders. And so... Lay people, hold your leaders accountable to teach and preach the gospel. Do what you can to ensure that your leaders are gifted and qualified and set apart and people of sincere faith. There's another aspect of guarding the gospel. And it's this to guard the gospel, to prize the gospel, to prioritize the gospel. You can't be ashamed of the gospel. You can't be embarrassed of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God will give you the power to do this, Timothy, but don't be ashamed and don't be afraid to suffer for the cause of Christ, for the gospel. And if anybody had the credibility to say this, of course, it was the Apostle Paul who is writing in prison. And shortly after this, tradition tells us that he was martyred by the sword. He was killed by the sword under the emperor Nero. He was a man who was not ashamed of the gospel and willing to suffer for the gospel. But then he unfolds. In verses nine through ten. He unfolds the. Wonder of the gospel. See, this is the motivation. It's not just, okay. follow my example. Be willing to be embarrassed and even suffer for the gospel. But then he unfolds the wonder of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel. Here is the reason why we ought not be embarrassed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what the gospel tells us about The nature of God and his goodness towards us. And he begins to unfold that in verses 9 through 10. And this is a beautiful passage of scripture to meditate upon. And as I thought about it and as I prepared the sermon, I thought I am nowhere adequate to be able to convey the heart here and the beauty of what Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I wish I had the heart and the mind and the eloquence to do justice to what he says here. Because this is, at, this is the gold in this passage when he begins to talk about the wonder of the gospel. Now let me just share some things here. In verse 9, the gospel is a message of salvation because he says, God who gives us the gospel is the one who saved us. And this God has Called us to a holy calling. And this is a work of grace. It's not because of our work, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Let's just think about that for a moment, that the gospel is a message of salvation. The gospel is a message of rescue. And we should not forget that, even though we have heard what Christ has done for us, many of us throughout most of our life. We need to be reminded that we have been rescued. I've been watching a show. I've been watching it too often. One of these shows on Netflix and you can get caught up in these shows and start streaming them. And, uh, and that's kind of happened in, in uh, the last couple of weeks. I've been taken with this show. It's a survivor show and it recreates uh, true stories of people who. Have to survive until they're rescued. And these are people who've gone off to the jungle or to the desert or into the mountain. And they're stuck there for days and days and days. And one story in particular caught my attention about a a man who went to the mountains on a hike. And he was not prepared for more than just a couple of hours to be out there on the mountain. And he got disorientated and he got stuck on a ledge on the side of this cliff. And there was no way up and there was no way down. And he was out of water. And he knew that he was going to die unless somebody came to his rescue, he even filmed final words to his wife using the camera that he had. And he was to the point after three or four days, I don't remember how long, where he's curled up on the side of this mountain in the fetal position. His, his hands are beginning to, to close in. And he's going in and out of consciousness. And then all of a sudden, he hears a helicopter above him. And he says, when I heard this helicopter, it was like a jolt of life went through me. And he got up and he waved his arms. And with tears streaming down his face, he realized he had been rescued. And they dropped the harness and they pulled him up and into the helicopter and gave him water to drink, which he hadn't had in three or four days. He said it was the best tasting water he's ever had or ever will have. But then he said, again, with, with tears, he said, I am eternally grateful To those who rescued me. And I thought what a picture of salvation. What a picture of what God has done for us. We have been rescued in Christ. We have been rescued from death. From the penalty of sin. Which is separation and death. Separation from God. Spiritual and physical death. We've been given new life. The new life of God has been poured into our spirits. And renewed us and refreshed us. God has saved us. That is at the heart of the gospel. It's a message about rescue. And then Paul goes on. that Not only have we been saved. But we have been called. To a new way of life. To a holy calling. We've been called to walk in newness of life. And uh, no longer afraid of God. No longer distant from God. No longer in rebellion from God. But we've been called to to a way of life where we seek to please God and we can have a relationship with God. And this makes life meaningful and rich. We've been given salvation that leads to a holy calling. And then Paul makes it clear that the whole reason this happened in our life is not because of our works, not because we've earned it or deserved it or better than anyone else or smarter than anyone else. But he says in verse nine, why did God do this? Because of his own purpose and grace. And this salvation, Paul says, is something that God has had in mind for us for all eternity. And that's a wonderful thought to think about. That your salvation is no accident. That you are no accident. That you have been known and loved by God from all eternity. And part of the plan of his salvation includes you as his child, as his son, as his daughter. And at the center of God's plan of salvation, of course, is the coming of Christ. And then he says, as he elaborates on what Christ has done, and this again is at the heart of the gospel message. Look at verse 10. This salvation has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to what Christ has done for us. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here is hope. Here is hope in the face of death. Here is hope when you're standing at the fresh grave of a loved one. Here is hope when you're contemplating your time running out and your mortality. That we serve a living God who's defeated death by raising his son from the dead. He abolished death. And the promise of the gospel, the light of the gospel, shines this hope of eternal life and immortality. Where else? Do you get such hope but in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we're we're not to be ashamed of this. We're not to be embarrassed by this. Easy to say on a Sunday morning with like minded people, isn't it? To talk about not being embarrassed and not being ashamed. And I think we've all felt that tension, or maybe we've been unwilling to identify. As a believer in Jesus Christ. Or we've kind of kept it in the background. And I think the antidote to that. I think the way that we can. We can grow in more boldness. And not being embarrassed. Especially in a culture. That is increasingly. Sort of pushing Christianity to the margins. I think the key to it all. Is to meditate upon these sorts of things. That Paul is talking about. The goodness, the beauty, the grace. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And coming together like this and worshiping God and thanking God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Meditating upon these things in prayer and in worship. This will fill us with the boldness that we need. This will enable pastors and church leaders to take a stand against teaching that undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. If our hearts are filled with the truth of what Jesus has done for us. We'll be able to recognize Truth from error and will be bold to take a stand. This will enable Christians at work or in their neighborhood to be willing to identify as a believer and then to live that faith out, not in a pushy or arrogant way, but with quiet confidence. We can say with the Apostle Paul, I know who I believe. I know in whom I believe. I know who rescued me. I heard somebody say some time ago that. Today, and I think we all know it. If you've been part of church for a long time, you see that today that there's a, a decline in, in church attendance, and so it's odd for a person in some parts of the culture, and even I think I'd say in our um, part of the world, in our part of the country, it's not as common as it used to be to go to church every Sunday, and that can be part of a witness, just to show up to church, and as your neighbors and friends might see that or maybe they'll ask what you did for the weekend. It's one way that you can kind of identify with the people of God is just say, hey, I was at church this weekend. Today, that can be something of a witness. And you can even go one step further and say, would you like to come with me next week? But we're not to be ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, uh, briefly, the church that guards the gospel must adhere to the message Of the apostles and you see that at the end of our passage where he says in verse 13 again think about a young pastor a kind of timid pastor he's pastoring a church in Ephesus there's false teaching swirling around he's looking for direction he's looking for godly counsel from his father in God from this apostle and here's what Paul says to him Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Remember my teaching and follow it and teach what I have taught you. Why? Why should Timothy follow the Apostle Paul's words? There's other people with their words that are coming into the church. There's other people with their wisdom that are coming into the community. Why should he listen to the Apostle Paul why should we, today, in the 21st century, listen to the Apostle Paul? Why should we follow his words and not other words and not other wisdom? Well, because if you believe what Paul says about how he encountered Christ, he encountered the risen Christ and then Christ himself gave him the commission to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was set aside for a unique role, an authoritative role, in the first generation, Of Christianity. And there are times where Paul says in his teaching. And maybe you can recall some of those times. Where Paul says. This is not me speaking. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a commandment of the Lord. And so we believe that Paul the Apostle was inspired. By Christ. And what he says and what he writes. Is the word of Christ. And so Paul says. I want you to follow. My words. I want you to follow what I have taught you. And when a church displaces the words of the apostles that were inspired and commissioned by Christ, then something else stands in its place. We have to have wisdom from somewhere. We have to have instruction from somewhere. And what happens is the wisdom of Christ and his apostles is replaced by the wisdom of the world. And then the gospel gets lost. And so as leaders and as lay people, you have a a right and a responsibility to ask yourself when you hear somebody stand behind a pulpit or any sort of teaching in this church to say, does that follow the words of the New Testament? Is this in line with the teaching of Christ and his apostles? Be like the church in Berea. Remember that in Acts 17 when the Berean Christians listened to the teaching of Paul. And Luke says in Acts 17, they were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Why? Because they opened the scriptures and they compared what Paul was saying with the scriptures to see if these things were true. And so that's what we have to do as a church. Always test everything against the teaching of scripture. You don't want my wisdom. (laughs) You don't want my latest and greatest thoughts because they're not that great. You want and need the wisdom of Christ and the apostles and those inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so to guard the gospel, we need right leaders. We need not to be ashamed. We need to follow the apostolic message. I'll close with this story. There was a a pastor in Philadelphia some years ago, many years ago, and some of you will know the name Donald uh, Barnhouse, and he uh, preached every week. His sermon was broadcast through CBS radio, through the nation. That's how long ago this was. He had a famous sermon where he talked about, well, what would it look like if the enemy of the gospel took over this city of Philadelphia? And it, it had a twist to it, what he said. And you wouldn't expect what he said after, after that. I'm going to kind of um, abbreviate and uh, uh, maybe change a little bit what he said. But he said, you know, if, if the enemy of the gospel, if the devil took over the city of Philadelphia, maybe the crime rate would go down. Maybe there would be less drugs on the street. Maybe uh, people would greet each other in the streets with a smile and all the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. He said, now, this is the real twist. He said, if the devil was in charge of Philadelphia, the churches would be filled every Sunday. But they would be churches that did not preach Jesus Christ. You see what his point was? People would think they're OK. Because of their morality. And the way they treated each other. And they would think that they're okay with God. Because they came to a church. And they participated in the life of the church. But the church would be a Christless church. And that would be a very spiritually dangerous place to be. They would think that they're okay. But they would be lost. Because they had never heard the gospel message. The need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For their salvation. A priceless church. Where the gospel is not preached. May that never happen here. At Church of the Resurrection. By the grace of God. Let us treasure and guard the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Lord I do ask that you would. Protect and preserve your word. Here in this place. For your people here. And I pray that. We would do this in the context of love and, and grace and, and gentleness. We don't want to be angry. We don't want to be Christians who circle the wagons and, and look out at the world in a condemning way. But we want to preserve your truth, your grace, this message, because it is life giving and it is the way that you have revealed I wish men and women and boys and girls can be reconciled to you. And so we thank you for that work in our life. And we pray, God, that you would help us to continue to stand fast on this foundation that you've given us. It's in Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.